how many of you have heard about macro voices? If you spend any time listening to Economics and Markets podcast before, then surely you've occasionally dabbled in a bit of macro voices and the great Eric Townsend. When I started this podcast, I made a list of 20 or so names entitled the Google Doc Dream Guests. On this list include names the likes of Salman Rushdie, Ricky Ponting, Chael Sonnen, Robert Friedland and McAvoy, Elaine de Paton, Mads Mikkelsen, Jared Diamond, David Yarrow, and among these many names was as well Eric Townsend. Eric has dipped his toe into several disparate worlds. He made millions as a software entrepreneur in the 90s, retired onto a yacht in his 30s, managed a hedge fund, and has since built one of the strongest media platforms in finance. In this podcast, we cover Eric's formative experiences that led him to become a software entrepreneur, the why and how behind Eric's energy transition documentary, why Peter Zihan and Nassim Taleb have yet to appear on Macro Voices, a little bit behind the scenes of Macro Voices, there is an explanation of the significance of the USD being the world's reserve currency, the ethics of tax evasion, a personal anecdote of serendipity, and the chat just goes again to show that while life can be understood backwards, it must be lived forwards. But before we begin, I just want to draw everyone's attention to my main podcast, which serves as the main meal to this entree, A Curious Worldview. My most recent guest over there was the great Thomas Erickson, one of the best-selling authors of all time. He's the author of Surrounded by Idiots, an amazing Swede. If you like the interviews here, then you will love the Curious Worldview podcast because it is the same style, same interests, same curiosities, just applied more broadly beyond the narrow realm of geopolitics. So do go and subscribe to that podcast. If 5% of my attention is going here, then 95% of it is going there. It is the top link in the description. Without any further ado, here is the host of Macro Voices, Eric Townsend. All right, Mr. Townsend, what was it like being a software entrepreneur in the 70s? Well, I don't know. I was a kid in the 70s. Um, I, I... first discovered computer programming in the late 70s, but uh, I was, I think, 11 years old at the time, and um, I didn't actually start my first software company until I was 16, so that would have been sometime uh, uh, around 1981 or so. Um, what was it like? But, yeah, uh, the, the landscape. World. Yeah, well... well uh, Girls did not think that being a computer geek was cool then at all. So that was probably the the biggest difference uh, compared to what it was years after that. But in those days, nobody really understood. I mean, in broad society, nobody really understood what computers were or how they worked. People thought they were very smart machines that you could ask, you know, how many gallons of water are in the Atlantic Ocean, and they would know because they're so smart. They didn't understand that they're actually just machines that that do procedures of calculation. So almost everybody in today's society has a much closer sense of what computers are and how they work and what they do than they did back then. But uh, at the time, it was... Uh, it was something that very few people really understood what it was. And uh, I think I got lucky in that it was just uh, as I was discovering computers on uh, digital equipment, PDP-11s, which were you know, very, very small computers by today's standards, but they still took up most of a room. Uh, the first microcomputers where you could realistically own one yourself and keep it in your house came just a few years after I started uh, computer programming. So uh, 
it, it was the right time to be uh, to be a kid and to be interested in computers, I guess. And um, in high school, the fact that I knew all about computers was not impressive to anyone. Um, it, 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 it people just thought it was weird, really. Mm. Uh, so it had a very different connotation than it does today. What were the conditions that led you to get into it in the first place? How were you around computers and introduced to it? I lived in Concord, Massachusetts, which was right next door, next town over to Maynard, Massachusetts, which was the headquarters of Digital Equipment Corporation. Back in those days, Digital and IBM were the two computer companies in the world. This was before you you had Microsoft and Apple and and all that stuff. Uh, So at the time, there were universities that had computers, but uh, the idea of a public school, like a high school having a computer, was almost unheard of. And certainly for a junior high school to have a computer was completely unheard of. So probably just because it was the next town over, my town was the first uh junior high school in the country to get a computer donated by digital equipment. So this thing was, uh, it showed up and they didn't know what to do with it. And they had a little bit of a a political debacle between the science teacher and the math teacher because they both thought it would be cool to have it. And then they fought out who should have it and then they realized that it was going to take up space and they didn't have any space. And then they both didn't want it. And they tried to sucker the other guy into getting it. And the science teacher ended up with it. So in the corner of the the science classroom in my junior high school was this little PDP-11 V03, which was the smallest of the PDP-11 computer lines. So it was, I don't know, about the size of a a filing cabinet that rolled around on wheels. It was intended to be a laboratory computer. And they didn't know what to do with it. So for the first six months or so, it just sat there. And then somebody found a book of computer game programs in the basic programming language. And they didn't have basic programming language. So they called digital and said, look, you gave us this thing and we don't know what to do with it because the only thing we could find was this uh, book full of, of computer games in the basic programming language, and it doesn't have basic on it. So digital sent them a, a, a basic compiler for the, uh, the computer, and they, had a, they invited kids to type in the game program and see if they could make the tic-tac-toe game or whatever it was work on the computer. And nobody had any interest beyond that. It was not like, a, you know, this is the first computer for, you know, we're lucky that our school has one. No other school has one. You know, let me add it first. There was none of that. It was, you know, it's kind of weird. What is that thing? Why would anybody care about it? And I was the only kid who was fascinated by it. it was probably because my parents were getting divorced and um, I, I wanted some distraction from my home life that I was just fascinated. So I asked the science teacher if I could stay after school and read the books. That, you know, that for some reason, the science teacher, or the, both of the teachers had claimed that they'd been through all the books and you know, really couldn't make sense of the thing. So I open up these three ring binders. There's like 12 of them. And all of the books are still in cellophane shrink wrap. So they, the teachers had never even looked at the books. They'd never opened them. So I broke open the, the books, took off the, the, the shrink wrap and started reading about 
programming computers. And at the time, uh, it's it's funny thinking back on it. I, I don't think anyone in the computer industry knew that it was important for the documentation to make sense to people who are not computer experts because most people are not computer experts. They'd only ever sold a computer to somebody who already knew what to do with it. Um, so I sat and read these books after school and eventually learned first the basic programming language and then the PDP-11 assembly language, which was the uh, sort of, I don't know, the more, uh, uh, the sexier, uh, more serious programming language at the time. And uh, from there, I, uh, I, I, I did everything that I possibly could to figure out what high school was going to have the best computer. And I ended up going to a vocational high school because they had a computer operator training program. And they weren't set up to teach anybody to be computer programmers, but they had a much better computer than my town high school was going to have. So I ended up going to the vocational school to get access to a PDP-1145, which was a much bigger PDP-11 that took up a whole room. Um, and uh, that was kind of where it all started. And it was in high school that I started my first software company. Uh, and it only took the first year of high school to kind of get bored with what they had there. And my, my dad was an MIT grad, and he, was, he tried to drag me to this stupid thing I didn't want to go to. It was some MIT alumni thing at, uh, at the campus. And he took me and showed me the Charles River and where he used to be on the crew team and rowing the boats, and I just couldn't care less about any of this. And then at the end of the day, it was like he says, oh, we can sneak through this. Uh, I used to sneak through this building when I was in school here. We can get to where the car is parked, go this way. And we're walking through this building, and I'm looking through these glass windows and these computer labs, and there's just computers and computers and computers. And it was like, tell me more about this place. Now I'm interested. But I was, I was at this point, not even in high school yet. So or I, I was I guess I was just starting high school. It was the, the summer between junior high school and high school. So I knew that I wanted to get back there. So I ended up spending most of high school uh, hanging out at the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT. And the story there was they had a program to allow high school students to get a login account, not access to the building, just a login account that you could dial in. And at the time, it was 300 baud modems were the in thing. So if you remember the, the modems that everybody thought were super slow, those were like 56 kilobits, 1,000 bits. This was 300, uh, not, 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 not kilobaud, but just 300 baud. Incredibly uh, slow-paced computer access. Um, but I uh, eventually figured out how to sneak into the laboratory and grew a beard in high school and disguised myself as a grad student working in the lab and discovered that if you avoided daylight hours when the, uh, the bigwigs were, were there, uh, you could sort of fit in and look like a, uh, a grad student. And I was not the only one. There were about six of us. We called ourselves the high school hackers. We were high school kids who were all sneaking into MIT's AI lab in the middle of the night and getting away with it. And that lasted for all of high school, really. Uh, so I learned most of what I learned. I needed to know about programming from uh, hanging out, pretending to be a grad student at MIT while I was in high school. And so computers are driving all of your decisions at this point. You said you went to, uh, uh, you chose this high school just because they had the best computer. Could you intuit the potential of the computer or was it just a lot of fun 
to engage with them? Oh no, it was it was very clear to me. I remember uh, one of the things that happened in my sophomore year in high school was the teacher in the computer lab at my high school, and they were teaching people to be computer operators at the time, said that it was very newsworthy. He thought it was a, a, an article in the Boston Globe that said there's going to be a, a company has been formed to be a software company, and everybody was skeptical that there could be a software company that didn't build any hardware. And I remember at the time just thinking, how could anybody be so stupid as to think the hardware matters? I mean, it's the software is what does is what solves the problem. Is do, does whatever it is. All the hardware is is a, a box that the software runs on. That nobody thought about it that way. And I realized two things while I was still in high school. One was that computers were completely the future, going to completely change the world. And I also realized that it's more of a social thing than a technology thing. My computer teacher literally couldn't fathom the idea of a software company staying in business on software alone because it hadn't been done before. And I was just thinking, you know, how, how could anyone think that anything other than software was going to be the future of what defined business? And I looked at the way that things worked, and they, you know, they, they taught us. Uh, it was kind of cool that, that I got almost the antique approach because my, my high school had such crappy computer equipment. They had these things called wire boards, which before there were interactive computers where you sat and typed a program in, there was actually a type of computer where you, uh, you took these modules and wired, you know, physically put jumper wires into them in order to configure what functions they would perform. And they got plugged into a card sorter machine, which was those Hollerith cards, the, the rectangular cardboard cards that people used to call computer cards. Probably most of your listeners today don't even know what I'm talking about. But before there were computer programs and computers that had, uh, that, that had TV screen-like interfaces, the way you interacted with a computer was through these cardboard punch cards. And programming the sorter machines for the, the punch cards, they were designing business processes. Uh, companies' whole plan of how they would you know, run an insurance company was based on the ability of a card sorter to take a stack of cardboard cards and sort them according to the way somebody had programmed them by configuring jumpers on these little wire boards that, that configured the, the card sorters. And I was programming first in basic and then in assembly language on real digital programmable computers. And that was just such a difference that I had the perspective of knowing where the industry was coming from. And I knew the stuff that I was doing was the new thing. And a lot of people weren't sure if it was going to take off or not. And I was just absolutely certain from the age of 14 that the computer industry was going to become what it is today. The other thing a lot of people don't know is the internet didn't start in 1992. I was on the internet in 1979. It was called the ARPANET then, and it was restricted to research laboratories and, uh, and universities. So it wasn't open to the public, and you weren't allowed to put any for-profit business on it because it was government-funded for research. But really, the infrastructure of the modern internet all existed in late 70s, early 80s. It was really it, 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 from 1965, I think, is when they built the original 
ARPANET, but the TCP/IP protocol was around 1980, 81. Uh, that because I remember when I was at, at MIT sneaking in, there were a lot of guys around me were working on the TCP IP protocol. It was the hot thing to be working on at the time. And that really uh, set the stage for the modern Internet. So all that stuff was much earlier than most people think. You said something really interesting that uh, you were so confident that a software uh, company could exist and even your teachers, uh, they couldn't even fathom that that would be possible. Um, so something you're very certain on that the general consensus is the opposite opinion for. Do you hold a position like that today or have an opinion like that? Oh, just what's obvious to me that's not obvious to everyone. Uh, it's definitely that the future of energy policy is far more important than any other political issue. Uh, if we don't blow ourselves up. I guess nuclear war is still the most important thing to avoid. But aside from that, uh, almost nobody understands how important energy is to our standard of living. The reason that we don't all work on farms is because of energy, because of the energy that we get from fossil fuels. And uh, although climate change is now very well understood, what most people don't understand is that although we're not running out of oil yet, we're going to eventually get to the point where it becomes cost prohibitive to continue to extract fossil fuels. It's not because there's no oil left. It's because we always start with the lowest hanging fruit. So all the cheap, easy to produce oil has already been discovered and exploited and, and, uh, and developed. We're still developing deep water offshore and shale oil and these, these various other kinds of energy. But the thing is, it will take several decades to transition the world off of fossil fuels. The last energy transition from wood and coal to oil took like 50 years. The, the first oil well was uh, drilled in 1959, but uh, Spindletop, which was the first gusher and really the beginning of the Texas oil boom, wasn't until 1901. So there's 40 years for, for it to catch on and for systems to start to be adapted. Uh, and you know, you've, you've got to replace the vehicle fleet. You've got to change everything. Uh, we've got to rebuild all the electric grids. There's so much work to be done that almost nobody understands. And what most people think is, well, you know, it's all about this climate change thing. And if you don't believe in climate change or you're not too worried about the temperature getting warmer, well, then it doesn't matter. And the thing is, we're going to run out of affordable energy and what people don't see is it's already slowing us down. When I was a kid, gasoline cost 30 cents a gallon. Energy was abundant. You didn't think too much about how much it cost to, to buy gas because you could afford it. Now energy is so much more expensive, even adjusted for inflation. When I was a kid, gasoline would cost about $2 in today's dollars. That's the equivalent of 30 cents a gallon today. We're paying almost double that, and I predict by 2025 we'll be paying triple that. That slows down the pace of societal advancement. We don't live the comfort of lifestyle that we would have had if we had cheaper energy. And it's been at our fingertips for decades. If we would build out 
the nuclear energy infrastructure that we really need, we'd be able to dramatically reduce the cost of energy, make it more abundant, make it cleaner, solve climate change, but more importantly, give society all of the energy that it needs to thrive. And we're, we're screwing up and we're screwing up badly. And I unfortunately predict it's only going to get worse because climate policy is literally going to cause an energy crisis in the middle of the 2020s. And it could easily have been avoided. Uh, the, the just stop oil mentality is going to be the cause of it. And yeah, we definitely need to phase out fossil fuels, but you can't phase out fossil fuels before phasing in a viable replacement. And we're trying to get rid of oil rather than addressing the real problem, which is building enough clean energy to replace oil. That's what we should stay focused on. And so in uh, pursuit of addressing this question, you are producing an energy documentary. So I'd like to ask you, one, how does it work putting it together? Two, how does it work uh, shopping around for distribution? And then three, maybe a broad why uh, no, not why, abroad, what you want the outcome to be from it. Well, I'll start with the last one because that's the most important. I feel that the millions and millions of people around the world who have become focused on climate change have their hearts in exactly the right place. We've only got one planet. We need to take better care of it. And we need to think in the long term about paving the way for prosperity for future generations and not consuming finite resources for our own convenience and leaving nothing uh, for our children and grandchildren. So I, I feel very passionately about wanting to help the future of the world or help the world get its shit together. Um, I feel as much as everybody who's focused on climate has their heart in the right place, they're being misled and they're being badly misled in several ways. Uh, they're, they're being led to believe that wind and solar alone are going to solve this problem in a reasonable time frame. And I forget who it was that said it. It's a, a, I love this line. I wish I'd said it myself. But somebody having a debate about this said, you know, it's not that I'm against solar. It's not that I don't like solar. It's that I do like arithmetic. And if you look at the amount of energy that we get from fossil fuels, more than 85% of our energy supply comes from fossil fuels. We've spent the last 25 years aggressively building wind and solar with a lot of government subsidies helping it. And it now supplies less than 2% of our energy. So to solve this problem by 2050 with wind and solar alone, we'd have to build more than 50 times as much wind and solar in the next 25 years as we managed to build in the last 25 years. And we've already used up a lot of the prime land that you know, was available for that. So it's not going to get easier in the future. The, the cost of it has come down dramatically, solar in particular. Uh, the cost has come down, and solar will be a big part of the solution. But there's no way that wind and solar alone are going to solve the entire problem. And geothermal energy offers uh, some really exciting possibility. Nuclear offers some exciting possibility. As I researched nuclear, I was shocked by, by what I learned about just how corrupt the history of nuclear power has been. Because, you know, what I've always thought is, well, gee, if they could just solve, you know, find a technology solution 
to solve these problems of core meltdowns, the, the horrible accidents like we had at Three Mile Island in Fukushima, if, if there could be a technology solution for that, then we'd have such a bright future. You know, why haven't we focused on that? Well, the answer is we did. It was in the 1950s and 1960s that uh, a project at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, completely solved the problems of nuclear uh, meltdowns and uh, hydrogen separation, which is what caused the explosions in Fukushima that, that blew the roofs off. All of these things were solved by getting the water out of the nuclear reactors, replacing water as the coolant with a molten salt coolant. So molten salt reactors solved all of these safety problems. They could have completely prevented the Fukushima accident, the Three Mile Island accident. If we'd shared the technology with the Soviets, it could have prevented the Chernobyl accident. It was all tested, proven, and working in the 1960s. Then in 1971, President Nixon canceled the entire program because he wanted the money spent in his home state of California instead. And I'm not, you know, if you think I'm making this up, wait for my documentary to come out. I've actually got a recording of President Nixon's phone call with Congressman Craig Hosmer of California, where the two of them are scheming on the phone. You know, here's how we're going to cancel the, the, the most groundbreaking uh, work ever done in nuclear reactor technology. We'll cancel all that so we can get the money spent in California on, on our, our boys. And there was another uh, project called the Liquid Metal Fast Breeder Reactor that was being developed in Southern California without any consideration of the merits of what had been accomplished in Oak Ridge versus what had been accomplished in Southern California. They canceled the molten salt reactor experiment in favor of uh, redirecting that money to California. And it was purely for the fact that the guys in charge of the government were from California. They wanted to keep the jobs in their own state. They said so in a recorded phone call. So to find out that we've had the right technology to solve all these nuclear problems, but the government has been standing in the way of progress for all these years, was kind of a wake-up call. So uh, going back to what am I trying to accomplish, I want to show people that energy transition, getting, uh, breaking our addiction to fossil fuels, is the single most important challenge that humanity faces in the 21st century. And we are not, I repeat, not doing a very good job of it. All of this, all the climate change stuff that you see mostly has to do with politicians that are corrupt and pushing an agenda for reasons other than the advertised reasons. A lot of the wind and solar development has to do with sending subsidies to their friends uh, in the right places. It's not because wind and solar is the best solution. Wind and solar is an important part of the solution, but geothermal energy is far more promising than wind and solar, but it doesn't get anything close to the attention that it needs from governments. So mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do with the documentary series is to explain, number one, how important energy is to our standard of living, how important it is to break our addiction to fossil fuels because it opens the door to a whole new era of human prosperity. If we can get rid of these cost constraints and, and finite resource constraints of fossil fuels, that by itself 
is a huge, huge advancement for society before you even consider the environmental benefit of getting rid of greenhouse gas emissions. So as much as, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we can solve climate change by breaking our addiction to fossil fuels, that's only one of the, the reasons, and I don't think it's the most important reason. So I'm trying to get that clear, and then I'm trying to lay out a plan for exactly how to do it with a combination of deep geothermal and, uh, and nuclear energy. Um, wind and solar definitely play into it to provide intermittent power sources. But there's so much more to this that they don't tell you. You know, you, you go to, to listen to the, the climate crowd and you see pictures of windmills and solar panels and it all looks great and there's music playing that feels good and great. Well, nobody tells you how much environmentally destructive mining is going to be required to produce all the copper needed to build all those electric vehicles. And nobody tells you that once you've got, a f everybody's got an electric vehicle, the current electric grid can't even begin to recharge all those vehicles. We don't have anything close to the electric grid capacity needed to recharge all of the world's vehicles. So we need a brand new electric grid for almost the whole world. We need to replace every single uh, fossil fuel burning power plant in existence with a clean ener energy alternative. Uh, these are massive, massive infrastructure public works projects. If we were spending the money that we're spending on trying to have a war with Russia on these things, instead we could be advancing humanity instead of threatening the future of humanity. And uh, I'm just trying to lay out a plan because what really has been my inspiration for wanting to do this now is the old saying, never let a crisis go to waste. I'm convinced that a global energy crisis is coming. When it hits, I want young people to know what's up. I want them to have the inside scoop. And when the politicians say, oh, well, there's no way to know what was coming. It couldn't have been avoided. I want them to know it absolutely could have been avoided, that people tried to avoid it. It was not avoided because of misguided climate policy in a lot of cases. And it's very clear what needs to be done to fix it. It's just that we've got to get people on the right page. So I'm trying to lay out the roadmap so that young people know what's really going on. So when this crisis hits the stage, they can demand change. Go back to then point one and two, which is um, how you're putting it together and then shopping it around for distribution. Well, I had uh, the good fortune of meeting a producer of a very popular documentary series on Netflix who gave me a lot of good advice because my first thought was, okay, I've got to, I guess, fund this myself, figure out how to hire a documentary film producer and produce something and sell it to Netflix or one of the other streaming services. Uh, fortunately, I met someone who explained to me that that's a really, really dumb idea. Nobody does it that way and it's not a good, not a smart way to approach it. Um, the streaming services, you really want to pitch the idea to and sell them on the idea and they want to have some degree of control over the production to meet their standards and specifications. So the way to go about this is not to just go produce a movie and then try to sell it to Netflix, but rather to pitch Netflix on why they want to partner with me to hire the right guy, hire the right team who has produced for them before that can create a Netflix or some other streaming service documentary series. Uh, the way to do that, uh, my producer friend explained, as he said, look, 
you've obviously got a lot of passion for this. You should tell this story in a low-budget preview version of your documentary series that you produce yourself on YouTube. And he said, you're, you're making a huge mistake, which everybody makes, which is you're assuming that you can't tell your story because if you do it on YouTube, then it's not going to be fresh, it's not going to be original, and the streaming services won't want it because it's already been used up. He says it works the exact opposite. They don't consider YouTube to be competition. If you can get it to go viral on YouTube doing it yourself, that's your calling card. That's what allows you to walk into Netflix mm. and say, look, I did this with you know 20 grand production budget. Uh, I made a, a YouTube series that make that delivers this message with what's really going to be in the first version um, motion graphics and some cool stuff on the screen it's not a real documentary series like something that Oliver Stone would have made it's more like explainer videos that explain mm -hmm. all of the concepts it's my voice as narrator it's it doesn't have Morgan Freeman uh, and his wonderful voice telling you the story uh, it's missing all those things but it's going to get the message out, and we're going to get this out in the next couple of months. I hope that by the end of May, the whole thing will be up and live at energytransitioncrisis.org. Uh, and I guess your audience will be the first to hear that URL. There's no website there when you go and it says <laughs> d d did not connect, you know, uh, URL not in use. Uh, it's because we're that early in the project. We're just getting things set up. But what will be there within the next couple of months will be about a six-part, six-half-hour-long episodes that go through the various different parts of it. The first episode is about the need for energy transition, why it's not just climate change, how important it is, how badly we need to do it. The second episode lays out the master plan and basically says, here's what you have to do. You've got to electrify the whole vehicle fleet. You've got to uh, replace almost every internal combustion engine in existence with an electric motor. In a few cases where the... the uh, the, the there's more power needed than you can supply with batteries then you're going to use a hydrogen fuel cell instead of uh, an electric motor or you may even in the case of ships at sea you use ammonia liquid fuel in order to power existing diesel engines but i go through what it's going to take and among other things, it says we've got to replace every single power plant in existence with a new clean energy version, and we need to deliver about 80,000 terawatt hours of electricity by 2050 in order to completely phase out fossil fuels. That's a really, really ambitious uh, thing to take on. And then the rest of the series, the, the third episode, explains why policy mistakes that have already been made are certain to cause an energy crisis in uh, the mid-2020s. And then the remaining episodes talk about geothermal and nuclear energy and explain a whole bunch of things that you didn't know about, re about clean energy, uh, particularly that all of those safety problems that you think of as being associated with nuclear energy, uh, everything having to do with nuclear meltdowns and nuclear waste disposal and uh, weapons proliferation risk, these are all solvable problems, and they're problems that have been solved in many cases decades ago, but the solutions have not been implemented for one reason or another. There, there's uh, a whole new generation of nuclear reactors 
you know, it, it, everybody talks about, well, what are we going to do with the nuclear waste? We've already got a quarter, uh, it's 250,000 tons, quarter million tons of sp uh, spent nuclear fuel waste that's accumulated from all of the world's operating nuclear power plants. And the environmentalists are very rightfully saying, this is not cool. We're, we're, we're you know, making these big stockpiles of nuclear waste. We can't do that to future generations. Well, it's criminal that we've done it for as long as we've been doing it because waste-burning nuclear reactors that actually use spent nuclear fuel waste from the old reactors as their fuel were invented a long time ago. But they've never been commercialized. Why? Because there is no process with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to even request a permit to build or operate anything other than a light water reactor, the kind of reactor that is cooled by water. Water is made out of two things, hydrogen and oxygen, H2O. Well, how is it possible that hydrogen, which is the, the explosive gas that the Hindenburg was filled with, and oxygen is the stuff that makes everything burn hotter and faster. Yet water is the stuff we put fires out with. You know, how could that be? Well, the answer is that hydrogen and oxygen are bound so tightly together in water molecules through what scientists call a covalent bond that they can't be broken apart because it takes a huge amount of energy, so much energy that you would need the the to be in the inside of a nuclear reactor where there's this sustained nuclear fission reaction going on to have enough energy to break the hydrogen and oxygen apart into separate gases that could become explosive. Well, guess what happened at Fukushima? Exactly that. The hydrogen and oxygen in the water coolant got separated, and that's where hydrogen explosions literally blew the roofs off the, the, uh, the reactor buildings in Fukushima. All of this stuff, it's not like some freak accident that nobody could see coming. People have known about these risks for decades, talked about them, and in the 1950s and 60s, they solved all these problems at the Oak Ridge National Laboratories, and then President Nixon decided to cancel the whole thing and literally throw all of the research papers away. They, were, they somehow wound up in a, uh, a rural children's museum somewhere close to the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and they were scheduled to be destroyed. And this, this guy, a, a NASA engineer who had become fascinated with molten salt reactors, got wind of this and did a little one-man uh, fundraising effort to raise enough money to scan all of the documents before they were destroyed. And, you know, we, we've got this... this this wealth of information on how to build much safer nuclear reactors that the government is sitting on. It doesn't, hasn't done anything with. And so we've got to get our shit together and, and use the technology that my parents' tax dollars paid for uh, and, and modernize the nuclear fleet. It's no wonder that we have all these horrible accidents. We're using outdated technology. And the, the solutions were designed a long time ago. So we can get rid of all the nuclear waste. We can actually use it as fuel if we get the right kind of waste-burning breeder reactors, which were designed a long time ago. They're proven to work, but we don't build that kind. We build the old kind that produces waste instead of the kind that consumes the old nuclear waste. It's insane the policies that we have. And so we need to get our shit together. And what I'm trying to do with the docuseries is get people to understand 
just how screwed up energy policy has become and what it would take to get it back on course. Can you give a rational explanation for why energy policy might have gotten there in the first place? Oh, absolutely. It's it's corruption. What uh, I think that there is a long history of people in the oil and gas industry infiltrating and uh, controlling government. Certainly, um, there, there have been plenty of presidential administrations from oil families. Uh, I think that in the 1970s, when... Uh, we were for a short time on the right track with nuclear. It was early technology that had some uh, some limitations. We needed to advance that technology, but we were, from a policy standpoint, we were on the right track. The people with uh, financial interests in oil and gas, I think, were very instrumental in derailing the nuclear power industry. Uh, I think it was, it's all about the money. It's always all about the money. Um, And I I think that the same thing has been true with even sleazier dealings in the green energy world. You you hear about, oh, isn't it going to be wonderful climate change, blah, blah, blah. There's lots of connections between the politicians pushing for climate change and the green energy companies. And, you know, there's sweetheart deals for the politicians to get, uh, you know, to effectively get paid off for directing all of this climate policy. Uh, and I think a lot of the reason that we see so much overemphasis, I, I, I want to be clear, I love wind and solar. They're good stuff. I'm not down on wind and solar. But I'm very frustrated that as a matter of government policy, the clean energy folks are looking only at wind and solar when geothermal and nuclear are so much more promising. And we can solve all the problems, all the safety problems, all the nuclear waste problems, weapons proliferation problems. There's solutions to all of that, but we're not using any of it because we're focused on telling people this fairy tale story about windmills and solar farms solving everything. And wind, wind turbines and, and solar arrays are good stuff. But after 25 years of subsidized, aggressive development, they supply less than 2% of our energy needs. It, 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 you know, at the pace that we're going, it would take you know, 300 years to build enough of it to meet our energy demands currently. And our energy demands will get higher by then. We could build all the nuclear that we need in order to solve this problem in the course of about 15 years. So we can solve all of this by 2050, but we've got to have a completely different strategy than what's being discussed today. When you talk about the energy transition, do you ever receive pushback? Like, are there people in your network and circle of friends who uh, ever make you question something that you're saying or thinking? Yeah, and it's something that... To me, it's what I worry about is is not whether we can solve the engineering problems of figuring out how to make deep geothermal wells economic or figuring out how to solve nuclear proliferation risks. Those are not the challenges. It's the hearts and minds challenges that you've got. This climate issue has become so politicized that people are so polarized in their views. There's the anti-climate crowd that tends to be politically right-leaning. That's, you know, it's all a bunch of bullshit. It's all a hoax. Let's just ignore all of it. Let's just keep polluting, produce more oil. And it's like, look, even if you think it's all a hoax and there's no climate change, which I disagree with, but even if you thought that, 
Oil and gas are a finite resource, and although we haven't run out yet, it's very clear that we're By starting definition. to run out. You know, we're, we, we've gotten to the point where all of the, the cheap and easy-to-produce conventional, you know, conventional oil production peaked in 2005. So that's almost 20 years ago now. And, yeah, we were able to supplement non-conventional production with the, the shale oil revolution. Okay, shale's got a few more years left in it. When that peters out, we're going to go to subarctic, very deep water offshore. There, there's more things to go to, but they all get more and more expensive. And eventually, you're going to get to the point where although the, all the oil will, won't be completely gone, all of the oil that's practical to recover at any affordable price will be gone. And the thing that they don't ever seem to consider is when you run out, you can't wait. You, know, you can't just wait and say, well, let's just keep using oil till we run out of it. Then we'll switch to something mm -hmm. else. Switching to something else takes 20 or 30 years. It's going to mm -hmm. take decades to move society off of fossil fuels. So I'm convinced that even if we, even if you pretend, let's pretend that some, you know, magic scientific discovery has figured out that climate change was, was uh, all a, a complete false alarm. There is no climate change. There's no global warming. We don't have to worry about that. It doesn't change my conviction one iota that we still need to break our addiction to fossil fuels because although we're not out of them yet, we will run out of them in less time than it's going to take to install the clean energy replacements that we need in order to, to, to replace them. So if, if you, you've got to build more electric power plants in the next 25 years than we've ever built, actually about twice as many in the next 25 years as we've ever built in all of recorded history until now, that's an this is a daunting challenge. How are we possibly going to do that? I don't care if there's climate change or not. We need to get off of fossil fuels. And yeah, we're not out of oil, but we're not going to go for the next 100 years on fossil fuels. We're beginning to run out of these things, and we've got to be proactive in, in, in transitioning away from them, with or without climate change. But what you get is the people who are skeptics of climate change don't want to hear it. It's just, ah, screw that climate bullshit. We don't need it. And then you've got the people who are sold on it, mostly the political left, and they're sort of on this, everything has to be uh, completely renewable. You know, it can be wind and solar, but we don't want to talk about nuclear. We're not interested in learning about the fact that all the, the weapons proliferation and, and waste problems are all solvable. We don't want to hear that because, ooh, nuclear, you know, that's, that's evil, that's bad. And in the case of geothermal, even, the fact that the best way to achieve a geothermal resolution is going to be to repurpose the oil and gas industry, use the horizontal drilling technology that was developed for the shale revolution, repurpose it for clean, zero carbon emissions geothermal. Well, if it involves those people... Yeah, them, the oil industry. Well, well they're the enemy, damn it, and, and we don't want to. We don't want to have anything to do with them. Well, look, we got to get away from us and them, and focus on who's got the skills to get us to the uh, the clean energy economy that we need in order to run the world, and stop pointing fingers. And I blame the politicians for a lot of this. It's climate, uh, along with the, this whole gender ideology thing. 
they've been they've been used to pit people against each other. Let's get you if you're on the left to hate the right by by saying that they're you know everything they think about gay rights is wrong and everything they think about energy policy is wrong. Let's use this to divide uh, society and get people angry at each other. We got to get away from that crap and get to working together, regardless of our political beliefs, on teamwork to build a clean energy future for humanity that will allow us. I mean, we went from almost no progress in society from 1200 to 1750, and then in 1770 something changed, and we've made a huge amount of progress in society. Since then, what was what changed Mm. the steam engine and the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and harnessing energy so that we could take the amount of energy that it used to take, you know, what what was 482 hours of human labor on a farm. And unfortunately, it was usually slave labor. Actually, you know, we, we rationalized human slavery because of the physical work that was needed to run the farms until we got the steam engine and we could replace 482 hours of human labor with one gallon of gasoline doing the same amount of work. Another statistic I find fascinating is even the most uh, uh, capable professional athlete, strongest man in the world, cannot do as much physical work as 50, in one day as 50 cents, half a dollar worth of electricity can do. That's how much benefit we get from energy, and nobody appreciates it. The reason that you and I don't, and everybody else listening, the reason you don't work on a farm is because you don't have to anymore. 200 years ago, everybody had to work on a farm. There were only a few exceptions, like people who were doctors and so forth, that didn't have to work on the farm because we needed everybody's help just to get the food we needed to survive, not to turn a profit and have a a financialized economy like we have today, but just to have enough food to survive. Everybody's work was needed on a farm. Look at how society has changed. It's changed because of energy, but we didn't know how badly we were polluting the environment with all of that energy. What if we could go to the next step, do a 1770s uh, revisited where we go from fossil fuels to not an equal amount, but a much greater amount. So we have more abundant energy that's cheaper than it ever was before. And it's all completely clean, green energy that doesn't pollute the environment. So we don't have to worry about the implications of using it. We could enable a completely new era of human prosperity that would be like the change from everybody has to work on a farm and we have slave mm-hmm. la- you know slavery and all these things going on to today's society we could have that same uh you know step function of growth of societal advancement by building out a clean energy future and the thing is all the technology has already been figured out there there there's a huge amount that has to be worked out in terms of where the raw materials will come from. As you said before, we don't know where to find enough copper to do all of this. But all the, you know, how to do it, the engineering problems, it's all been solved. It's a pretty clear path. We just need to start doing it. And instead, we spend all of our time on wind and solar fairy tales where all the, the people that are, are listening to these left-leaning politicians 
are being misled with this story that we're solving this problem, when in reality we're making microscopic progress. We're barely making any progress at all toward building the clean energy needed to replace fossil fuels. We haven't even gotten to the point where we can level off. You know, you, the, before you can eliminate fossil fuels, you got to build enough clean energy to allow fossil fuels to just stay stable, like we're going to cap it so we don't use any more than we're using currently. We haven't even gotten to that point. Fossil fuel demand increases every single year, even as we're aggressively building wind and solar. Wind and solar is not enough. We've got to do something much bigger. And to really address this problem at the scale it needs to be addressed, you need nuclear energy. There is no other alternative. And it sounds like, oh boy, we're going to have to make that trade-off and accept the dangers of nuclear. Well, wait a minute. If we could get the government out of the way, all of those dangers of nuclear have been solved technologically a long time ago, we need to get rid of light water reactors, replace them with molten salt cooled reactors, and we also need to move to a thorium fuel cycle and not just use uranium because in order to really get to what I'm talking about of a, a, a future where we've got more energy than ever before and a lot of it's driven by nuclear, we would eventually get to uranium scarcity being a problem. As soon as you get to a thorium fuel cycle and also when you use breeder reactors, which are much more efficient at how they use the, uh, the nuclear fuel, and also particularly uh, waste burner reactors, which can use the quarter of a, of a billion, I'm sorry, quarter of a million tons of, uh, of nuclear waste that's, uh, that's already accumulated and use that all as fuel, um, we're not going to have a, a scarcity problem with, uh, with nuclear. It's not going to be an issue. But we need to get to advanced nuclear. We need to get off of these light water reactors. And so far, the U.S. government is in the way of progress. The, and it's gotten a little better in the last few years. They're finally starting to promote what they call Generation 4, which is new nuclear reactor technology. Well, they call it new. They describe molten salt as this brand new 21st century reactor technology. And they, they have a paper out that says, by 2030, watch for molten salt reactors to become a thing. Well, molten salt reactors were built and tested in U.S. government laboratories in the 1950s, before I was born. Uh, we just need to put that technology to work. So it's all at our fingertips. We could do it, and I think it's government uh, favoritism and, and uh, special interests that have gotten in the way of us having the, the, uh, the, the energy policy that we need to enable a completely different level of human prosperity. I want to ask you one question about uh, geothermal specifically. Um, obviously, there's a bit of proximity bias, especially for me. You know, I'm very bullish on it. I, in my opinion, it's just one very solvable engineering problem away from ubiquitous geothermal, deep geothermal all around the world. Um, but if you take like a, bear, a, a bearish signal in Daniel Jürgen's new map, he didn't mention geothermal once. Um, and I'm thinking about Vaclav Smil as well, you know, this incredible energy writer. He never mentions geothermal as well. And if he does, he refers to it back in like the early 1900s in Italy. So as a bearish signal, how do you think about the true reality of geothermal potential? Um, I'm just trying to, I'm not formulating this question well, but just trying to tamper geothermal as a given. 
how do you look at a bearish signal like Daniel Jürgen not mentioning it? Or how do you try and balance off your opinion about where these energies are going? I don't know why people like Dan Jürgen, who's a brilliant guy, uh, why they're not focused on geothermal. Um, one of the things that, that I've realized is that I, when I learned about supercritical geothermal, more than 374 degrees Celsius, I got really excited about that potential. And I realized, wait a minute, I'm, I'm jumping further ahead than I need to. We could solve all of the world's uh, electricity problems if we could figure out how to drill through 250 degrees Celsius rock as economically and quickly as we're able to drill a shale well today. So if we could repurpose the shale, oil, and gas uh, industries' um, talents on geothermal, you look at what they did, and I tell this story in the documentary series, you look at what they did with, uh, uh, with the shale revolution. A lot of people think that, that hydraulic fracturing and, uh, and horizontal drilling were these brand new technologies invented in 20, 2010 that changed everything. That's not true. The first oil well that was ever drilled with horizontal drilling was drilled in 1929. And the first co successful commercial application of hydraulic fracturing was in 1950. That's 60 years before the shale revolution really took off. Well, why did they, they knew about this solution and nobody touched it? Nobody did anything with it. The answer is because nobody was pushing it and it wasn't economic yet. And it was really the economy of scale that changed everything. So you took hydraulic fracturing was only economic with oil prices over $85 a barrel. It didn't make sense to use it if you had any oil price lower than that. But five years later, it made sense at $35 a barrel. Why? Because the U.S. shale industry had taken a previously niche technology and turned it into a mainstream commodity technology where there's frack spreads for rent all over the countryside and, you know, it's very easy to, uh, uh, you know, to repeat that process. It wasn't a specialized niche technology anymore. We need to do the same thing with geothermal and it's not just a metaphor of repeating the the miracle of the shale revolution it's the same technology it's literally mm. shale revolution all over again but instead of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracking in shale rock which is porous rock that contains oil we need to do the exact same thing of horizontal drilling and also some hydraulic fracturing because that helps uh with with building the the geothermal capability because um, you want to use the, the fractures through the rocks in order to get more exposure to, to more surface area to transfer more heat into the water that you circulate through these things. Um, you want to do hydraulic fracking and horizontal drilling through hot, dry rock instead of, uh, you know, moist, oil-laden rock. That's the only real difference. So it's do the same thing over again that we've already got a proven ability to do and even if you did it, you know, to, to get to supercritical, which is more than 374 degrees Celsius, that's really challenging. There's a lot of technical hurdles that haven't been overcome yet. You know, it's, it's a hard thing to do. But drilling through 250 degrees Celsius rock is, yeah, it's a, kind of pushing the, the limits of current technology. But the, sh 
the, the oil and gas industry has solved a lot of challenging problems over the years. It's within their ability to do this. Mm. Why is it that they're not focused on that? Well, maybe because the government's treating them like public enemy number one and, you know, trying to do damage to them at every turn. I, I don't know. But for whatever reason, nobody's really behind it yet. Uh, and, and I don't really understand, though, you know, why are these people? I think um, Peter Zahan has talked about geothermal, but hasn't given it the emphasis that I think it deserves. And what mm. stands out to me about geothermal, you know, yeah, it's, it's not economic yet, just like shale oil wasn't economic in the beginning. But the technology breakthroughs that we need are really pretty darn obvious. You've got to learn to drill holes through hotter rock than we know how to drill holes through today. And, you know, I just look at it as if 50 years ago, before electronic ignitions had even been introduced for passenger cars, President Kennedy says we ought to build spaceships and go a quarter billion miles to the moon, land there, take a few selfies and come back. And we did it. If we can pull that off, you know, people say, oh, well, d drilling, drilling through 400 degrees Celsius rock to get supercritical geothermal to work, that's a really hard engineering problem. And my answer mm -hmm. is, wait a minute, tell me with a straight face that that's harder than going to the moon and back in the 1960s. In the Come 60s. on, it can't be that hard. So we, we're not trying hard enough. If we can just put a little more effort into, and I think in the case of, of the uh, more in the 250 degree, not super critical, but enough to produce electricity with, all that is is a question of getting the economy of scale there. You can already build geothermal in Iceland and Indonesia, and it works great. It doesn't work in the rest of the world because you have to go deeper in order to get to the same temperature of rock, and it's just a cost trade-off. If we could get the cost of drilling those wells down the same way that the shale industry was able to get the cost of drilling shale wells dramatically lower after a few years, then we could make geothermal economic and it would leapfrog wind and solar to become the most economic uh, source of, of energy. And I don't have any evidence to support this, but my, my, my suspicions are that the politicians that are pushing wind and solar um, they're not getting kickbacks from anybody in the geothermal world. I think it's no. the wind and solar world where they've, they've got their political connections and their, their donation relationships. So maybe the problem is the, the geothermal industry needs to make more political donations. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure. And to the audience, um, to hear more about the technical dif difficulties and then as well just um, the different types of technologies that they're trying to use to dig into deeper, hotter rock. 92 with John Redfern and... 94 with Carlos Arake. Um, but um, Eric, you brought up Peter Zihan. I had a question prepared for you. I mean, he seems like such a perfect guest for Macro Voices. How come you haven't had him on yet? We've invited him. He's blown us off. And to be honest, is from what I've seen of him, he seems... Uh, I... I, I I, I've had other guests that I'm more excited about interviewing. We would like to have him on. Uh, he's got a standing invitation. He, he blows mm. us off. I guess he's too big and important for Macro Voices. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but How he does he do that? He goes on significantly smaller shows. Yeah, I don't know. He's. We have reached out to him several times. I think we've had an interaction. He's politely declined. But Fascinating. Uh, yeah, we get... It, it's funny. I, I think that... 
a problem with the podcasting landscape in general is that there's so many podcasts that I think that a lot of busy people don't know how to gauge. You know, some podcast invited me and mm. we, we need a scoring system. We need a ranking system <laughs> that says, yeah. you know, when you've got 200,000 regular listeners as we have at Macro Voices, but the, the guests who are in various it's different industries, audience. they don't know, you know, podcast metrics. They don't know what's a big audience or a small mm. audience. So they don't know who to say yes to and who to, who to say no to. But we get the same thing in finance. We get people who are really big, important finance guys who come on the show. And then we get little nobodies who, who blow us off because they act like, you know, we're just a podcast and they only do TV appearances. And it's like, okay, yeah. whatever you say. Yeah, well, they're, they haven't caught up to the media change yet then. Yeah, it's, it's 200,000. Oh, sorry, go on. I'm not going to mention any any names, but we've heard from quite a few of the guests that we have on Macro Voices who are more savvy and know what's going on that they get far more benefit from being on Macro Voices. The leads they get from being on Macro Voices is far more beneficial to them than being on the financial television network that was launched a few years ago. But we get a whole bunch of people who don't want to come on Macro Voices because it's just a podcast. But if it was TV, well, that's, you know, I'm going to be on TV. That's a different thing. So there's this stigma that goes with, uh, with being on TV, although the, the TV guys, because they have to pay for TV production, they have to charge for that. They can't give it away for free. And as a mm. result, their audience size is microscopic compared to ours. But the guests and advertisers, or the guests never know that. They, they never yeah. seem to notice. On that, this is a tweet from you, January 31st. CNN's Nielsen verified primetime audience has fallen to just 444,000 viewers. Meanwhile, Macro Voices has grown to a PodTrack verified global audience of 210,000. CNN is still bigger, but on the basis of audience count per dollar of production budget, well... Wolf Blitzer has not sent us his resume yet, and uh, we're not going to consider it if he does. Uh, you mentioned how some of these big guests that you have on, uh, it's a great lead generator for them. Uh, I, I found it quite um, quite funny that you, you actually created Macro Voices in the first place as a stealth marketing strategy to promote your hedge fund. Originally, yes. And um, it, it, it was never particularly effective for that purpose. But I've quite enjoyed doing it. And after shutting down the hedge fund, I thought about shutting down the podcast completely. And uh, I don't know. It's my baby. I'm, I'm used to it. It's, it it <laughs> yeah. gives me the intellectual stimulation of talking to smart people every week. So I enjoy doing it. When did you first start uh, getting a significant audience? Uh, so it started in 2016. I, I would just love to hear you reflect on the journey so far. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I remember... Uh, in in the beginning, it's uh, we were lucky to get a couple of people. Like Jim Rogers was the first interview. Anything with Jim Rogers is going to get some views to it, and it was also helpful. But in the beginning, we had we, we were typically getting about uh, say a thousand downloads for the first few months, and it was when we broke about four or five thousand downloads that we started to get known and uh, 
it, it's kind of funny because a, we, we, we get lots of people who were fund managers listening to Macro Voices. And I think that in for, among busy people, finance people, people that are running funds and so forth, very, very, very few would ever have time to, you know, I'm going to sit down and listen to a podcast because that's the way I want to spend my Saturday. Uh, it's people who are at the gym on the treadmill that want something more interesting to listen to than music or mm. people who are driving or, you know, doing something else that they're listening to macro voices. So we would have all of these fund managers listening uh, to macro voices and we would have lesser uh you know, guests that 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 would decline our invitations because they're like, sorry, you know, I don't, you, you're you're sm- you're you're you know, small potatoes stuff. And knowing who our listeners were and the fact that these people felt that way just didn't make sense. But the funniest one was when I still had the hedge fund, uh, raising money myself was not going that well. I didn't have that much. I, I didn't really know for sure that I wanted to, to be running other people's money. Eventually decided it was not for me. But while I was going through that whole process of trying to decide whether or not uh, I, I wanted to grow the hedge fund and try to be in that business, I talked to some of these capital introduction brokers who are mostly pretty sleazy. And I didn't really want to deal with them, but I was saying, okay, if I were to sign one of these guys up, to find investors for me and they they get commissioned a percentage of the fees and so forth and it's a sleazy business i didn't want to deal with it if i didn't have to but i was talking to this this one cap intro broker who told me and i won't i won't mention their name but um she there's not many of them who are she's said uh well listen uh i'm very sorry but you you're a small fund you know you're you're uh not don't have really the pedigree of coming out of Goldman Sachs or something like that that we look for. So I'm uh, I'm going to decline to be, you know, your cap intro broker. I'm, I'm not going to be able to offer you my services, but you're a nice guy. So I'd like to help you out. So what I can tell you, if it helps you to get into this business, is all the hotshots, all the best guys that we're representing now, the up and coming managers, all seem to have one thing in common, which is they're all listening to this podcast called Macro Voices. So I recommend that you check that out. Good luck to you. Sorry that we can't help you. And I'm like, wait a minute. You're recommending my own podcast as like if I want to be cool enough to, to be your client someday, I should listen to Macro Voices in order to maybe be as smart as your clients are? You're serious. Um, yeah so (laughs) it's 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 unbelievable like how some people get into positions of influence i mean you know that's such a unbelievably dumb mistake to make um but it actually happened so that was the advice i got sorry we can't represent you but we recommend you listen to macro voices (laughs) to be like the the cool fund managers that we do represent Tell me a non-obvious benefit that you've accrued because of your position as the host, creator, producer of Macro Voices. Oh, I think that, I mean, the reason that I still do it is um, entirely about access to smart people. When, When I sold my software company in 98, I was 33 years old, and I thought, oh, I'm just so lucky to be able to retire in my early 30s. You know, isn't that great? Well, as soon as you don't have a full-time job, 
your network of smart people evaporates and the most intellectual stimulation that exists in your life is talking to the smarter of the two waitresses at the Cactus Club and, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, where, where you're having lunch or something. Um, it It is a, uh, a, a real experience to to kind of have this awakening that when you're not in the professional community anymore, uh, people who are smart enough to be professionals are not in your life and not in your circle of friends anymore. And you have this, this starvation of intellectual, intellectual stimulation. So the reason that I continue to produce macro voices and do interviews every week is it's my chance to talk to somebody really smart and interesting every week. And as a result of doing it, I kind of, it allows me to have enough of a name for myself that I can call other people to talk to them about my docu-series. I, I call up venture capitalists and say, listen, I want to ask you a few questions about why advanced nuclear, nobody's biting yet. You know, there's, I can't find a single molten salt reactor company that's ever received any institutional funding. What's the problem? Is it is it because of the regulatory barriers or, or why is it that nobody wants to touch these guys? I can get them to take the call because they've heard of me because they know about the podcast. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it's staying in the intellectual ecosystem of uh, people who have more to say than the waitress at the restaurant, uh, which is where I found myself when I tried to retire in my early 30s. So it's network and sort of intellectual stimulation. It's intellectual stimulation and, and network of smart people. Yeah. Uh, what you don't I mean, realize when you, when you do exciting, interesting work in any profession is that people who are really smart are a very small percentage of the overall population. I guess everybody does know that. But you take for granted that you're surrounded by smart people and you talk to smart people every day and, and you've got interactions with smart people. If you're not working professionally in some intellectually challenging job, you don't have that anymore. And all the people around mm. you are the people who work at McDonald's and yeah. it's not nearly as interesting. You have, um, I get the sense, a lot of interests in say travel, culture, you're a bit of a foodie. I, I get a sense you have interests that fall well outside macroeconomics finance. Are you ever tempted to uh, use, you know, your platform size as an excuse to talk to someone in a parallel field that's got nothing to do with finance, but you're nonetheless deeply interested in? You know, I've thought from time to time about doing another podcast that's not... Originally, Macro Voices was conceived and its subject matter was conceived to promote my hedge fund. So it was promote myself as a, as a guy who's smart and knows about macroeconomics and investing. And that's where the whole format of the show and everything came from. Um, it's already on a course that I don't want to disrupt. I think it would be a disservice to my loyal audience if I were to right. say, oh, well, now it's about basket weaving. Um, I, I would enjoy, frankly, interviewing uh, some advanced nuclear guys about trends in nuclear reactor design, which I, I know that sounds incredibly... That's on theme, though. Well, it, it is, but I'm I'm becoming more interested. Uh, it would be on theme if we were talking to them about investment opportunities in 
mm. those things and understanding the technology for that reason. And I have done some of those things. I, I, I have done some, some shows uh, on energy-related topics. But I'm becoming much more interested personally in the future of the world aspect of this. And so doing a separate podcast that is like the energy policy podcast that's for people who are interested in energy and the future of energy and that interviews, you know, people who, who it's not about investing. It's about the best way to solve the world's energy problems. And I've thought about doing that, but I'm already very comfortable doing macro voices. I've kind of mm. got an audience. I'd have to build a new audience. And it, it takes a lot of uh, time and effort to build up a decent audience. I suppose that I've got a following on Macro Voices, so there at least be, you know, a way to to market it. Uh, I've thought about that, but I'm more interested in the amount of time that I have to do something other than Macro Voices. I mm. want to do this energy. Uh, it's called Energy Transition Crisis, the documentary series. The first version will be done in the next couple of months. It's the YouTube low-budget version. Uh, the purpose of that is hopefully if we can get it to go viral on YouTube, that will be my calling card to go to Netflix and say, look, let's yep. per, let's hire Oliver Stone. Let's do the uh, – or whoever they want to hire. Let's do the broadcast quality version of this, mm -hmm. and let's change the world and really wake all of these people that are focused on climate change up to recognize that they've got exactly the right idea, but they're being misled about what it's going to take, how big of a job it is, and how many solutions really are available to us that we're not pursuing, especially yeah. in the area of advanced nuclear. Speaking of guests, uh, you mentioned um, Peter Zihan. We've just spoken about people that might fall outside of your, you know, Macro Voices interest. Someone who I find just endlessly fascinating and influential on in the way that I see the world is Nassim Taleb. Um, and he famously, you know, doesn't do much interviews, um, mostly because he's not that interested. But I just wonder, two-pronged question, one, whether you've reached out to him, and two, whether he has influenced the way you see the world um, as well. I think he's a very smart guy. We have reached out, but as you know, he doesn't do interviews. There's a long list of people um, that, that just don't give interviews, period. And mm. uh, I would love to break through that with someone, some of them, and, and be the first one to, uh, to interview them. Um, but a lot of these guys just have a policy that they don't want to be interviewed. The one that, uh, that I would most like to interview um, it would probably piss off a lot of the audience, especially now, but long before this Ukraine thing happened, I have been trying to get Sergei Glazyev to, uh, to okay. get, give us a, uh, an interview. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, Glazyev is the architect of the de-dollarization campaign for the BRICS plus countries and is now a, a advisor to Vladimir Putin. And uh, I'm sure people would accuse me of being a Russian asset or something. My interest in Glazyev started long before this conflict started and it has nothing to do with that. But for economic reasons, even before there was war tension between the U.S. and, and Russia, Glazyev is the guy who has looked at the U.S. dollar's hegemony over the global financial system and he said this is, you know, a huge benefit to the United States and it is a huge problem for everybody else, especially us. And we should figure out how to take the dollar down, essentially. Uh, and I don't think he wants to put the, you know, he doesn't want to collapse the dollar to zero, but he wants to 
take away the dollar's monopoly over the global financial system because right now the entire world is designed around the U.S. dollar. And I think that's fascinating. And, you know, my view is you want to, you know, know thy enemy. You want to uh, interview and understand the views of people you disagree with. And so I would love to really ask him a lot of questions, including, you know, what is this a tool of economic warfare? Is it is it just a tool of economics and economic policy? Uh, is it your intention to try to uh, remove the dollar from its position of hegemony? Is that the reason for your your BRICS uh, digital currency system, which I predicted in my book? Um, I would love to, to, you know, the person I would most like to interview would be Sergei Glazyev. I would hesitate to do it now just because so many people would take it as in the wrong way. But uh, my desire to interview him started long before this whole Ukraine thing came up. Yeah, it's a bit sticky platforming uh, an advisor to Putin at the moment. Um, But at the risk of opening up a very, very deep tangent, could you just quickly explain the significance of the USD being the world's reserve currency? Oh, it's huge, and it's something that most people don't understand. Um, A lot of my book, Beyond Blockchain, talks about this and explains the role of the dollar as the world's global reserve currency. But basically, um, the, the central banks around the world all have to keep a piggy bank of emergency money so that if something goes wrong in their own currency they need money not if you if you if your problem let's say you're the thai government and the thai bot is collapsing in value well if all of your savings are in thai bot and that's what's collapsing in value you're screwed there's no way to spend money to fix the problem if all of your assets are in your own currency so they have to keep a very significant amount of what are called foreign reserve assets or, or, or just reserve assets, central bank reserve assets. Um, and they need to keep them in something other than their own currency. And the old system was they kept gold. Uh, all the countries around the world owned gold bullion just so that there would be a uh, emergency backup if something went wrong when they needed to defend their own currency. In modern times, central banks need the ability to very rapidly act to respond if their currency is attacked. And they do that by buying their own currency. Well, the, the most liquid currency pairs with their own currency are U.S. dollar against it. So what they need to have in order to defend their currency is U.S. dollars. And they don't really have the ability to say, even if they want to say, you know, we, we're sick of the U.S. being in charge of the global financial system. We think that's not fair. We'd rather have it be more democratized. There's no good way to democratize it because if they just diversified and said, we're all going to hold assets in, you know, whatever other currency we happen to feel, you know, feels good to us in the moment, they would end up with not enough liquidity trading between that currency and their own currency to be able to defend their own currency in a crisis. So they're forced to hold U.S. dollar and, and U.S. dollar denominated assets, and that creates an artificial source of demand for U.S. Treasury paper. That means the U.S. government can get away with deficit spending and living beyond its means. And someday, and this is the one of the biggest things that I worry about in the world, there's a lot of people 
and, and Sergei Glaziev is kind of leading the pack. So a lot of people who are very frustrated with the system in which the U.S. gets this benefit of having its own currency be the world's reserve currency. If that ever changes and we don't have this artificial demand for U.S. Treasury paper because all the other central banks around the world need to hold U.S. Treasuries as their reserve assets, if that goes away, and they and, and some some of them are already doing this, they're they're selling their Treasuries and replacing them with gold or with other assets because they're angry at the U.S. about whatever set of U.S. foreign policy has them them pissed off. Um, if we lose that ability, we're going to lose the ability to, you know, all the politicians love to say deficits don't matter. Well, the reason deficits haven't mattered in the past is there's been this artificial source of demand for U.S. Treasury paper. So we can keep on printing up uh, Treasury bills in order to fu to fund deficit spending by the U.S. government, spend beyond our means, and essentially get away with it. Back in the 1960s, uh, the French, at the time, finance minister, later became the president of France, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, called this exorbitant privilege, the ability of, uh, of the U.S. government to uh, essentially spend beyond its means and get away with it. Because if any other country tried to do that, spend beyond its means on borrowed money, what would happen is the interest rates would go up and suddenly their cost of borrowing would go through the roof. When you're the issuer of the world's global reserve currency, there's so much demand for your debt instruments that you basically can get away with almost anything. Well, if we stop being the world's global reserve currency, all of a sudden deficits will matter again instantly, overnight. We won't be able to stick to our old ways. And frankly, the U.S. political system doesn't know how to live without deficit spending and, uh, and living on borrowed money. So we could have a really, really uh, devastating financial crisis that could change the course of history if we lost that reserve currency status. And very few people understand what reserve currency status really means and why it's so important. So Sergey and all of his mates that are conspiring uh, for something else, what would it take to change um, the world, change the USD being the world's reserve currency? It's mostly a a problem of uh, you know, it's it's a network effect problem. You've got to get everybody onto something that everybody can agree on, and the U.S. dollar, for all of its faults, it's been the the reserve currency for as long as we've had modern markets and and computer systems and so forth. Um, in order to change it, and I, I think the answer will be a a state sponsored. Uh, central bank digital currency there will be a BRICS digital currency BRICS bucks whatever you want to call it that will eventually challenge the US dollar for global reserve currency status and it, it doesn't have to be you know a, a race where one guy wins you could get half of the world the global south onto BRICS bucks while the rest of the world uses US dollars um, if you look at the period of transition the last time we changed global reserve currencies from the from the British pound sterling to the U.S. dollar, there was like 20 or 30 years that it was a state of flux where they were both reserve currencies and the trend was a move from pound sterling to U.S. dollars. It wasn't really until the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 that the U.S. dollar became 
codified as the world's global reserve currency. Before that, it was a combination of dollars and, and pound sterling. So I think we're beginning a period of transition. Is it going to be uh, the global south takes over the way the U.S. took over, or is it going to be a sustained uh, global south has their currency and we have our currency? I, I don't know. But it's very clear that the move is afoot, and it is a coordinated and uh, an intentional move led by Sergei Glazyev to get as much of the world as is able to to break its dependence on U.S. dollars and to have systems that don't rely on U.S. dollars in order to settle international trade. The most exciting thing about macroeconomics is noticing how these huge themes or giant disruptions can you can try and connect it to say how does that affect me living in the suburbs of sydney living quite an isolated life trying to draw connections between the two and you've said many times as well like uh, a reason you love macro is trying to understand why an earthquake in chile might mean the global copper price rises or something like that um so with that as the preface i just wanted to ask you know how much creativity do you think is involved in assessing second third order consequences how much creativity do i think is involved um i'm not i'm not certain what you mean but i i think that there is a there's a talent for being able to see cause and effect and uh, something there are a lot of things that for for some reason i've never been able to put my finger on these big picture concepts it's like when i was a kid in high school and i could see what the teacher couldn't see I, you know it's like what do you mean you're questioning whether a software company could ever sustain itself with no hardware you know the hardware is going to become the boat anchor that that, that holds you back you want to be a software company. You don't want to be a hardware company. Um, I could see that at the age of 14. I don't know why. And when I look at something like energy policy today, it's just so clear to me that it's politicized. People are being misled. There's the, the climate side where they're being misled in one way. There's the anti-climate side that's being misled in another way. Nobody's really seeing the big picture, which is we're, we're – consuming a finite resource that pollutes the environment, whether that pollution really poses an existential threat, I don't care. It doesn't, it's not even interesting to me whether or not climate change is really an existential threat because I know that in my lifetime, we're going to run out of fossil fuels if we stay on the current course. And I know it's going to take decades to make a transition off of them. So it's just so clear to me that nothing is more important in the 21st century than breaking our addiction to fossil fuels. Um, why is that obvious to me that that's the most important thing? But I'm not nearly as good as other people are at, you know, recognizing, you know, I, I'm not a... Uh, I'm not a very street smart person. The you know to to sense when there's there's danger. The the ability that cops have to know you know when uh, when the guy walking down the street might be a bad guy. I, I don't have that that perception at all. But I can see that energy transition is the most important issue that the whole world is facing. I don't know why. I guess some people's brains work in different ways. Mine has always been tuned toward those big picture problems. I don't know why. Mm. 
Well, that was kind of what the question was trying to get at. Is it a question of how much do you read? Is it a question of what you read? Is it a question of your experience? Obviously, it's a combination of them all. But how much would, say, a creative mind come into it thinking, hmm, this happened here. I bet you you haven't considered the downstream consequences here. You know, because every time you calculate one step further or a consequence away, the complexity to get there has multiplied on itself. Yeah, and you know, it's something that that's fascinated me throughout my career, both first in software and then in in investing. Most people think that it's much easier to do the detailed nitty gritty analysis of, you know, looking at balance sheet ratios or, or something. Uh, that's easier to understand than the really big picture of of macroeconomics and what are the the driving forces that are going to determine the direction of the economy in the next 50 years or something. Um, I just don't have the patience for the nitty gritty details. I, I can't do it if my life depended on it. I have to rely on other people's analysis and, uh, you know, other people's graphs and charts. Doing my own original research to go and source the data myself to figure these things out, I, I just don't have the temperament for that. I, I would never be able to do it. But I'm able to look at other people's graphs and charts and draw conclusions from them and see things that the guy who did the chart doesn't see himself just because my, my brain is wired more toward the big picture. I, I don't know why, but that's that's how my brain works. All right, Eric, uh, just one more for you and then three that I try to ask every single guest. Okay. Um, how do you think about the ethics of tax evasion and offshore finance? The ethics of tax evasion and offshore finance. Um, I don't. I don't really have a strong view on that. I think that it's changed quite a bit in recent years, in the sense that the uh, the U.S. in particular has closed all the loopholes that people were able to hide a lot of their income. Uh, it's basically impossible for U.S. taxpayers to do that anymore. Um, I do think that the offshore business has always been pretty sleazy. There's um, uh, a lot of offshore stuff. I mean, tell me more about what, I, I guess I don't really get, that, that question could be interpreted a lot of ways. Yeah, fair enough. So I ask you because you are an international citizen, you've lived in Hong Kong, you've managed a hedge fund, you deal with a lot of finance guys. Um, I'm sure you're very, you know, um, I'm sure you've had many conversations about, hey, how do I put my money here? Um, how do I avoid paying tax here? Um, and even if it's not yourself, just speaking generally, uh, I'd like to hear you reflect on the ethics of that. What do you think the ethics are of, say, paying the full amount of tax in the country that you live in? Maybe you don't agree with how those tax money is being spent. Therefore, am I, am I a moral person for trying to avoid paying as much tax as possible? More broadly, how do you think about the ethics of trying to avoid paying tax and then, you know, the how offshore finance enables the scale of criminal organizations to get to where they are? Um, because they can operate in secrecy. Just, uh, I, I understand it was very broad. That's why I kind of wanted to just see where you took it yourself. But that's where I am hoping you will take it. Okay, I, I see where, you, where you're headed now. Uh, I think that 
all people, and this is, it's, it's amazing to me that the United States, the country who did the most to advance this principle, because it was the basis of the whole American Revolution, was, look, just because we were born in England uh, does not mean that we don't have the right to leave if we don't like it. We can go and move to another continent and start our own government and do our own thing, and we don't owe the Queen of, or the King of England taxes. And, you know, we're willing to, uh, to give up our, uh, our benefits of being British uh, citizens if we're not paying taxes, but we refuse to pay taxes just because we were born there. The country that established that big advance of, uh, of liberty and freedom and economic justice is one of only two countries in the entire world that taxes its citizens based on their birthplace based rather than where they live. Every other country in the world, except for Eritrea and Japan, are the only two others that I know of, you can move out of if you want to, and you move to a new country, and you pay taxes in your new country, whatever their rules are, and that gives everybody the freedom of choice, which I think is essential. If you want to pay zero taxes, you have the right to go live in you know, some place that has zero taxes, and probably it's a pretty crappy place to live. Uh, if you want to enjoy living in Canada or Sweden or Switzerland or any of these really nice countries, there's very significant tax burdens associated with that. You can choose to live wherever you want and you have to pay the tax burden that goes with the country that you choose to live in. That to me is inherently fair. For any country, including the United States, to say, well, yeah, but because you were born in our country, you still owe us taxes even if you decide to move out and, uh, and you know, don't, don't want to live here anymore, you still have to, to send the U.S. A, a, a tax payment. I think that is unethical on the part of the United States and on the part of Japan and on the part of Eritrea. And what's crazy is Eritrea trying to impose its tax policy on its expatriates, people who have moved out of it, and they chase them down and say, you owe us taxes because you were born here. They were sanctioned by the United Nations who said that's absolutely ridiculous. And then somebody pointed out, well, if you're going to sanction them, don't you have to sanction the, uh, the United States too? And they said, oh, I didn't think of that. Um, don't, want to, don't want to open that political bailiwick. So I think the, the, the thing that's unethical is to try to restrict human freedom to leave if somebody doesn't like the system. But I think you have to follow the rules of whatever... Uh, country you choose to live in. If you choose to live in uh, a country like Australia or Canada, which have socialized medicine programs that you can benefit from, well, your taxes are going to be much higher if you want those benefits. Uh, if, if you want to live in a, in a, a place that's a very low uh, tax jurisdiction, well, then you're not going to get any benefits and it's probably not going to be as nice of a place. So I think that that people should all have the um, uh, the freedom to live wherever they want and to only be constrained by the tax regime of the place where they actually live. Um, I think that the policies of governments in trying to 
over, you know, the, the, the way the U.S. government has tried to enforce, enforce a birthplace-based tax, tax regime, I think that's led to a lot of these criminal activities because you, you have criminal entities that are in the tax evasion business, offshore lawyers who, who basically are setting up these dodgy structures to hide income. The, 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 they've closed up almost all of the, the loopholes now, but what it used to be is you, know, you, you would create an offshore trust, so it's, the money is no longer in your name. But you're getting the benefit of it, and you, 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 but but it's not technically legally in your name. And when you go to that country, uh, all your expenses are paid for out of this mysterious trust fund that nobody really knows where it came from. Uh, you know, there's there's dodgy lawyers in Panama and everything setting all this mm. up. I think it's sleazy as hell, and it, it's it, it's crappy stuff, but I also think that it is the unreasonable policies of the U.S. and other governments that led to the creation of those sleazy quasi-criminal businesses. Mm. I wonder, keeping everything anonymous, of course, but whether you have any anecdotes of sleazy dealings with someone setting up offshore accounts, trying to hide their income at all costs possible, yet, you know, nonetheless making... A significant amount, uh, but uh, just for the sake no, of not paying I, any tax. No, I really, I haven't, like when I was running the hedge fund, I dealt with people who were in several different countries. I didn't encounter anybody who was, you know, hey, can I, can I invest in your fund in order to hide some income and, you know, have my country not find out about it? What I did deal with and what everybody has to deal with is incredibly burdensome regulations that you, if you invest in any offshore entity, uh, that that uh, international investment transaction is scrutinized very carefully. And so what you'd end up with is people who wanted to invest in the fund who said, well, look, do you offer a, you know, a European Union uh essentially a front i forget what they call it but they they have these these entities where you if you're operating an international fund you can have a version of the fund which is registered and licensed in a specific jurisdiction just so that taxpayers in that jurisdiction can sign up for it and not get any special scrutiny or special treatment Mm. it's not Mm. an offshore investment it's an onshore investment for them now so it's possible to set up funds in a bunch of different jurisdictions just for that reason and i never tried to to do any of that um you know my uh uh my fund was a a delaware uh you know llc and pretty simple entity and uh and that was that um So it was a uh, a U.S. investment vehicle, and it was that simple. But there's these Cayman. A lot of people, a lot of hedge funds, will have a Cayman version of their hedge fund, a master feeder structure that that uses a uh, uh, both a domestic fund and an offshore fund. Most of it, though, in my experience, was not trying, not helping people try to beat their taxes, but trying to comply with incredibly onerous tax regulations in a lot mm. of jurisdictions that conflict with one another. All right, Eric, you've been so generous with your time. So just final three for you. Um, nothing to do with macro voices, uh, all personal stuff. Can you explain the role that serendipity has played in your life? Uh, 
I don't know. Um, uh, drawing a total blank. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm familiar with the word, uh, but I don't know. I, I don't think of myself as a serendipitous person or having had a serendipitous life. Well, if I was to project onto the story you've told so far, um, being at a high school that happened to have a computer come in um, and happening to have been introduced to the manuals, you could view that as a bit of serendipity. I'm really clutching at straws there. Um, but maybe there was uh, just in you know your 50 plus years, an incredible moment that might have steered a change in direction that came totally out of the blue through a random conversation with a person that you wouldn't have met if you hadn't gone to the bar that night. Some Something like this. Well, the, the funniest or craziest story that I can think of in that regard was getting busted after sneaking into the artificial intelligence laboratory at MIT at the age of 15 or so at, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, and we, I had just uh, come back. We went out to, to like some late-night Chinese restaurant in Chinatown with a couple of other guys that were grad students at the lab and I'm posing as a grad student I'm a high school you know 15 year old high school student who grew a beard to try to look older so I could sneak in and uh, we, we came back in and there's this guy walking around and he's some kind of security guy and he comes up to us and he introduces himself and he says you know we're we've got a report that um, there's been some issues with the ninth floor laboratory, which is the, the, at 545 Tech Square where the artificial intelligence lab is at MIT, or at least it used to be in the 70s. I don't know if they've moved it since then. The ninth floor, the top floor, was where the computer the computers were, and that's where I would hang out. And we came back onto the ninth floor computer room one night about 2 in the morning, and this guy who's you know got a badge on sort of shows up, and he announces that there's been issues with... Uh, security on the ninth floor and have we heard anything have we seen any suspicious people or people who don't look like they're supposed to be there he wants to you know and I'm just thinking okay I'm totally busted this guy and I'm looking at the handcuffs he, he's got on this on his belt and I'm thinking I know those are going to be on my wrists in the next 10 minutes and I know I'm totally completely screwed here and I'm just shaking in my boots and everybody's like no we haven't heard anything you know it's first we've heard of it and he says okay well listen I need everybody's keys because we're doing a, it's like a, you know, this was intentionally not announced ahead of time. Uh, we're, we're replacing all of the, uh, the, the, the locks in so that we, you know, people who, who may have gotten an illegal key or whatever can't get in. And so everybody, you know, give me your key and I'll give you a new key. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. Because I, the, my whole strategy the whole time had been to just, hang out outside the building and I'd wait until I saw somebody who looked visibly like they were shaggy enough that they were probably headed for the ninth floor. And I would just go get on the elevator behind them and I would, uh, they, they call it tailgating, you know, just chat up the guy, have a conversation. He uses his key to open the door. I follow in. I act like I know what I'm doing. That was my whole strategy for about a year. And I'm getting busted and I'm sure it must be me that they, they found out. And so he's, He's like, you know, come on, get your key. So I didn't know what to do, and I'm panicking. And I reach in my pocket, and I grab my keychain where I've got my house keys to my father's house because I'm a 15-year-old kid. And I'm fumbling with the keys, and I don't know what to do. And I'm just on the verge of saying, 
look, it's me. Just go ahead and take the handcuffs out. You know, I'll, I'll cooperate. And he looks at me and he gives me this just condescending, smug look. And he's like, it's that one. And he's pointing to the key to my father's shed in the backyard. And I'm like, I know it's that one. And I take it off my keychain, hand it to him, and he gives me a key <laughs> to the ninth floor computer nice. lab. And for the rest of high school, I've got a key now, and I can just walk in and look like I know what I'm doing. So that really was what cemented my access to the computers that I taught myself how to program in high school, which sort of uh, laid the, the foundation for becoming a successful uh, computer entrepreneur. So if not for that one uh, moment, uh, who knows what happened. If I had volunteered, and I was a second away from saying, okay, look, you got me, you know, <laughs> yeah. you arrest me. <laughs> so Nice, Eric. That's exactly what I, what I had in mind. Thank you. Okay. And, you know, um, we, it's easier to, to use hindsight bias and say that moment led to where you went. And obviously, the, the, that's not the truth. Um, you can never sort of, you cannot write a what if, what if he had taken the key? Um, what if he had arrested you? Where would you be now? Um, but nonetheless, like those sort of moments, not definitive moments, but at least influential moments where it could have gone the other way, I think um, is very interesting to reflect on and ask in others. I had another one if you want it uh, years later. Yeah, lay it on was, me. Uh, no, I, I was quite successful as a as a independent software consultant so uh, i don't have any college degree and I, i'm making you know 50 60 bucks an hour in the in the 80s um you know six figure income in my 20s but really i didn't think of it as wasting my time but i had the potential to to you know start a company and do something real i was really enjoying uh, a six figure income in my 20s in the 1980s and was quite complacent in that and one day when i was working for digital equipment i i did absolutely nothing wrong but i was the scapegoat they needed uh, they need they screwed up and they the digital equipment is a company that had never had a layoff in its 35 year history and they decided to close a plant in Burlington, Vermont. And it was going to be the first time there was ever anything resembling a layoff in the, com in the company's history. I was in Burlington, Vermont at a meeting the day that they pulled us all in to, the, to make this announcement. And I told them, I don't work in this plant. I'm visiting. And they're like, well, the security guard didn't get it and you know, said, if you know, you have to go to this meeting. It's mandatory for everybody. And it was the you're fired meeting. And so then I explained again, I'm... I'm not supposed to be here. You know, I don't work in this plant. I'm just here for the day. And I wasn't supposed to have attended the meeting, but they forced me to. The security guard literally said, you don't have a choice. This is mandatory for everybody. You have to go. So I write an email to my boss saying, hey, I'm in Burlington and this just happened. And the reason I sent the email is because that was our biggest customer was the Burlington Manufacturing Plant. We were developing shop floor data collection software in Marlboro, Massachusetts, or I guess by then we were in Tewksbury, Massachusetts. And uh, our biggest customer just got shut down and put out of business, which was the, the Burlington plant. My email got forwarded to almost everybody in digital equipment. And it was the it was so 
newsworthy because it was the first time the company would ever do a layoff. And mm-hmm. I didn't forward it. All I did was send my boss a perfectly appropriate email saying, hey, this just happened. I, I should tell you what happened. It mm-hmm. got forwarded to the point where this vice president um, decided that he was going to get, you know, he was he was going to make sure that I never worked for digital ever again. So I was not just fired, but also uh, removed. Or I was put on a, a do not deal with bad vendor list uh, mm. and forced to restart. And that is what forced me to get out of my complacent mode, being a software consultant, just, you know, being a, a kid who made more money than other guys my age, to actually launching a company that went on to do yeah. something significant and made some real money. So if I, if not for, uh, I, I, maybe we don't want to put that on the on the. Uh, yeah, I can cut that out. Yeah, if not for this one particular vice president uh, in manufacturing, and, and anybody who worked in digital in uh, in the eighties knows Uncle Lou. The, uh, the guy I'm talking about, uh, if he hadn't decided to, uh, to make me his scapegoat because they made an announcement they weren't supposed to make, uh, I never would have launched my first company and, uh, and been successful with that either. So I guess serendipity, you're right, does have uh, important roles to play. Beautiful. All right, mate. Um, this is one right up your alley. Could you please describe a country that you are particularly bullish on? Oh wow! It's it comes in so many ways. I mean, Chile is the the big thing that's going to happen is we don't have enough copper to do what we need to do. the The whole energy transition will require more copper than there is. Chile is probably the most copper rich. I don't know if that's true or not, but it it sure feels that way. So Chile, for its copper resources, uh, I'm incredibly bullish on. I own real estate there for that reason. Um, I I think. Chile has a huge future. Um, in terms of uh, other countries, do you mean bullish in the sense of economically bullish, think that they're going to do well or just... Yeah, that's definitely a huge part of it. But culturally, you could be bullish on them as well. Um, maybe they've got uh, a particularly good political leader, you know, wherever you want to take it. But generally, overall, you're bullish on the country. Well, I think that Asia, you know, this is Asia's century. Uh, I think that the advancement in Asia is going to continue. Um, uh, unfortunately, it seems like we're going to pit ourselves against them as, uh, you know, try to start World War III with them. I would prefer that we not do that, but it seems like that's where the U.S. government is headed in its policies. Um, in general, I think that the natural resources to achieve energy transition are going to be a really, really big um, part of the economic story for the next few decades. So countries like Chile, that's a really rich uh, source of copper. I'm embarrassed mm-hmm. to admit that I don't know for nickel and cobalt and, uh, and, and the various other metals that are needed for making batteries. Uh, I don't know exactly which countries are going to benefit from that. I probably ought to know that as an investor. Um, But those are going to be the natural resource plays. I think that uh, the uh, Western Europe and the U.S. are in a state of complacency where they don't understand that they're not in charge anymore. 
Um, the U.S. used to be so far ahead of everybody else technologically that it was just no contest, and it's just not true anymore. Uh, but the U.S. mentality, you know, USA, number one, we're the best, um, that used to be 100% true. It's not anymore. And the complacency that exists among Americans to assume that they're entitled to have the best standard of living on Earth because of the country's leadership, it, it hasn't been the leader in a long time. And it's time to wake up to that. And I think we could be the leader again, but we're not right now. And uh, mm. and we're complacent and, and angry at foreigners rather than trying to be competitive. And, um, and I think that's kind of sad. So I'm not necessarily uh, bearish on the United States, but I think that culturally the U.S. has some growing up to do, and I think that it may be forced if we lose reserve currency status. I think it's going to be a rude awakening economically for Americans. Um, aside from that, I, I don't know. I I, uh, uh, I think that what bothers me is I think that the world is becoming a much more conflicted place. I think mm. that uh, the the new Cold War is going to be worse than the old Cold War. It's clearly back. We're, we're in Cold War times again, and uh, political barriers between countries uh, are going to continue to undermine the quality of life in those countries. And I think it is military-industrial complex. I think that President Eisenhower had it exactly right. I forget the guy's name who wrote War is a Racket, uh, Smedley Butler, uh, Smedley somebody or other, um, whoever the guy is in 1935 who wrote War is a Racket, which was really the same message of... of uh, wow, 35. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah um, that was the first. And, and then, of course, the Eisenhower message. Uh, all of mm. this stuff, you know, there is no aid being sent for, you know, I wish Americans would wake up. There's no aid being sent to Ukraine. The aid is being sent to Raytheon and to General Dynamics and to the various other weapons companies in the United States that are benefiting from this, uh, this, this economic scam against the American people. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. We feel like um, when they say foreign aid or when they say, you know, um, aid for the Ukraine, in your mind, you just see this, these dollar bills fly over to Ukraine. But it actually yeah. just stays internally in the country. Yeah. And, and you know, we're, we're uh, oh, this, this whole story about how we have to stand with Ukraine. You know, if you're so passionately you know, feeling sorry for the people of Ukraine. Where's your passion for the Yemenis? They've been in a war for, for eight years with worse atrocities than the atrocities in Ukraine. But you've probably never heard of that war because mm -hmm. it's with a U.S. ally, Saudi Arabia. And so therefore, it's yeah. you're not being fed the same story. This is about military-industrial complex profiting from a state of constant war. It's not about saving you know i mean they <clears throat> certainly the 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 innocent victims in all of this have been the ukrainian people they're the ones who are undergoing horrific atrocities but it's not all happening uh, for no reason it's it's happening because of the financial incentives to keep the world at war so that the defense industry can make money and 
what's amazing to me is the president of the United States in his parting words, in whatever year that was when Eisenhower gave that speech, mid-50s, I think, saying, look, American people, wake up. This is the problem you got to pay attention to. It's like everybody remembers that speech. Nobody mm-hmm. seems to take it to heart and hold our our leaders to account. So I think that's, uh, you know, my... my uh, my, my pessimistic view is that I think we're headed back into that Cold War. Let, let's keep everybody at war so we can make money for our defense industry. It, it, it's scary and, and like almost too horrible to really believe that it could be the case that people are being blown up and wars are being waged simply for profit. Like it is too ugly to really believe, and and I think that might it's always be a big been the factor. But isn't it just? It's too bitter of a pill to swallow. Like you have to become so cynical about the world to really, really believe it. And and I think that is a limiting factor from why um, people choose to say our ah, military-industrial complex. Sure, maybe there's a bit of it, but surely it's not everything. It was the the whole first Cold War, and it seems to have taken control again for the second Cold War. So uh, I think it's the core of the problem. And I don't think that we needed to have any conflict between Russia and Ukraine. We we didn't need to have the United States meddling in Ukrainian politics in 2014. We didn't need to have any of these things happen. Um, And I think it is all about military-industrial complex. So I keep my fingers Another great... Yeah, another great reason uh, why Peter Zihan would be a terrific guest, you know. The way he speaks about the U.S. Um, and being such a strong U.S. bull, um, it would be, yeah, fascinating to hear some pushback. And also, I don't think I've ever heard uh, Peter directly talk about military-industrial complex. It would be great to see what he thinks about it as well. But um, finally, Mr. Townsend, a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, no language barrier, so a podcast. Who are you listening to? Who do I listen to in podcasts? Or, or, or no, who no, no. would I like to listen to? Any conversation that of history, dead or alive, no language barrier. Two people who you would listen to. Well, one, as I already mentioned, is Sergei Glazyev because I think that he's the guy that we need to understand from a financial perspective more than anyone else. His ideas as an advisor to Vladimir Putin, are going to shape the economic warfare that I think we're headed toward with Russia. And uh, unfortunately, I think that we we asked for this fight with Russia, but we're getting into it. And so knowing what is on Sergei Glazyev's mind is going to be the tell for what comes next in terms of the the economic warfare that I think will engrip the world in coming years, unfortunately. So I'd love to know more about what drives his thinking. Um, so who speaks to him? Who speaks to Well, I want to. Yeah. Um, it's like if you could witness a conversation between two people. If, it's, uh, if, I, if I can't talk to them myself, who sure, do you I can. want? Who <laughs> yeah. do I want to interview Glazyev? Um Boy, that's a tough one. I... I don't know. Um, Townsend Glaziev has a nice ring to it. It would be good. 
Well, we've we've sent him uh, for, for six years. We've been sending him invitations, and uh, he's not responded yet. So we'll see <laughs> what happens. Uh, okay. So um, okay. Well, look, um, Eric. When I started this podcast three years ago, um, I wrote down the twenty to thirty names, and it's in the documents called Dream Guests, and. Among those names was Pippa Malmgren and Eric Townsend. And I found Pippa Malmgren through Macro Voices. I've um, been listening to you. One of the first, uh, one of the podcasts that got me into podcasts in the first place. And I really wanted to uh, wait until I had a, at least a bit of an audience to sort of shoot my shot. And I uh, just wanted to, yeah. Give so you're that using admiration. me to get to Pippa, I can tell. Yeah, exactly. You're the launch off board to Pippa. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to leave you with that sort of message of admiration and, and just thank you very sincerely for uh, yeah allowing me the time and uh, for yeah being so generous with your responses. Well, thanks, Brian. I appreciate your having me on, and it's been a, a long and interesting conversation. Cheers, mate.